Hello, welcome to this very special series of Grazie Her's Life on the Land, where we deep dive into the lives, passions and projects of each of the seven national finalists of the 2023 AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. For the last 21 years, the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award has empowered and celebrated the leadership of women involved in Australia's rural and emerging industries, businesses and communities. Equipped with a $15,000 Westpac grant, each of the state and territory winners are in the running for the national winner and runner-up to be announced in September, awarded an additional $20,000 and $15,000 Westpac grant respectively. My name is M. Herbert, your host for this series. The hour between 5am and 6am is sacred time for businesswoman Eileen Breen. Grabbing a slice of time for herself, the 56-year-old laces up her joggers and runs around the bush block she lives on just outside Darwin before home becomes work and the site lights up with excavators and civil construction crew. Demolition is an interesting industry to work in for someone whose DNA is laced with sustainability. But it's the inroads that she and husband Jerry are making when it comes to resource recovery and recycling that truly floats the boat of this nature-loving business strategist. The road to where she is now has been anything but linear, with plenty of career and continent jumps along the way and truly began with an upbringing toggling between the bush and the big smoke. You do describe yourself as a square peg growing up in a round hole in Melbourne. (laughs) And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what you mean by that. I think it's just I'm really not a city person at the end of the day. And my parents have or had a farm in country New South Wales, um, a horticultural farm where they grew all sorts of things from asparagus to flowers to apricot to pumpkins, you name it. And that's the place where I just always felt like I belonged, on the farm, out in the bush, out camping. And the city life, it's just a little bit too fast and crazy for me and um, doesn't have that sense of community that I really love about country life. I really think it's so interesting when people are drawn to a life that was so different to what they knew growing up. Do you believe that came from, I don't know, like is that like an old uh, a past life or uh, that might be a bit woo-woo for you, but do you know, like why, why do you I, think it is that you were drawn look, so much to the bush? I think it's in the DNA um, a little bit, but also um, I have my parents to thank for that. So my dad is actually Dutch. He emigrated from Holland um, and in in his early 20s when he met my mum, he was a sailor sailing between um, Holland and Africa and Indonesia and Australia and um, jumped ship eventually and started a life with my mum in in Melbourne. But my mum had been nursing and one of her best friends um, from nursing actually lived in country New South Wales. So they spent a lot of their time uh, driving from Melbourne, a four and a half hour drive to where her friend lived and made all these friendships there. So when I came along soon after, and I think I was three months old, that was the first camping trip out bush. And it was this life that was always between the city uh, where they were working and then the country always going camping. And eventually they, they bought a farm and, and, did their farming activities and moved there full time. And I did all my schooling in Melbourne, um, lived in my grandma's house. And so it was 
always drawn backwards and forwards between the two. Um, but yeah, from early days, from three months old, I, I was a bush baby. It's so interesting, uh, your dad being a sailor, it's it's quite a romantic notion. And I suppose that's maybe where you ha- did get your intrepid spirit. Do you think that curiosity is something that's always driven you? And and do you think that's kind of defined your life as a, as a bit of a value when choosing your careers or, or where you end up? Oh, absolutely. 100%. It's Curiosity has led me to all sorts of different careers. Um, it's led me to living in different countries and trying all sorts of different things. And it's, I guess, a really core value or core part of who I am is that um, I, I may not have had a plan, but I've always followed my curiosity. Um, it might be a particular interest or something I read or something I hear about. And uh, it's just opened up an amazing world, um, a really varied and rich life for me. Mm. And it's the advice I give my kids. Um, you know, they're in they're young adults, um, two two boys. They don't quite know what they want to do with their lives yet, but uh, they've been traveling the world, living in all different countries as well. And all I say to them is just don't stress, follow your curiosity because it'll open up all sorts of opportunities for you. I love that advice. How do you have any advice on how to really tap into that? when the white noise of everyday life can sometimes be overwhelming, it can be difficult to hear that little voice of intuition. Yeah, I think it's creating space for that because uh, it is really easy to get just caught up in daily life, isn't it? And, mm. you know, you look at social media and and that 20, 24-7 media cycle, it's really hard to switch off from that. And I think uh, for me it's really important to to turn that off, get out into nature. And it's something I do on a mostly daily basis is, is get out onto my bush block um, with no noise around, just me, um, my dogs, the bush and the birds. And it gives me thinking space to get out, go for a walk or a run around my block um, and, and cut out that white noise and, and allow space in, in my mind for you know, the curiosity to just flow. Mm. Mm, yeah it's carving out that space and I suppose it doesn't have to be you know a week-long retreat it can be 15 minutes just yeah. being away from your phone yes yeah those those little uh, pieces of time can be really gold but mm. of course if you can get a week-long retreat that's great but, you know not everyone has that luxury totally so what have been some of your different careers that you have floated from using your curiosity as your barometer uh, my first sort of venture into the working world was in horticulture, which is what I studied at uni. And I went into landscape design, which I really enjoyed. I worked with a fabulous little company that did pool design and um, and gardens as well and all sorts of things around that, which was just uh, so creative. And it meant that I got to play with plants pretty much all day, uh, which I loved. And uh, that was going great until... Melbourne, where I was working, um, literally had a, a uh, what was it like a financial crisis at mm-hmm. the time, and um, it was a time where a lot of people didn't uh, interest rates went really high, much higher than they are now. I think it went up to like seventeen percent, mm-hmm. so there wasn't a lot of disposable income. And if you think about landscaping, that's really um, not a necessity. It's it's a nice to have. So the business went really quiet and I I went back and worked on my parents' farm for a little while and then had to think about, I had a lot of free time. I 
followed my curiosity, which was around plants. And I thought, oh, I'm really interested in how plants can actually have a have benefits for human health. And that's something I did a few short courses on. And I thought, oh, this is amazing. And uh, came across essential oils or, you know, the fancy name was phytotherapy. Um, your listeners might know it more as aromatherapy now. And I just wanted to learn more about how plants worked on human health through these essential plant oils. Um, but the only way to learn about it at the time was to do a course and you had to do massage because one of the ways to use essential oils best is through absorption through the skin into the into the body to get a, a real effect on the body. And I just thought this was like a, an awful idea. You know, I wasn't really into people. <laughs> I really like plants. <laughs> <laughs> but but Aline, people are just plants with um, confusing feelings. <laughs> Maybe that's the case. We just need water and air, <laughs> sunshine. Uh, so I thought, oh, my gosh, I really want to learn more about these oils. How am I going to possibly do this? I better at least go and get a massage and find out, well, well what's this going to be like? And oh, it absolutely blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. And I just thought this is such a powerful thing and yeah. has such an amazing way of helping people um, with their health, um, their emotional health, their mental health and their physical health. So I went on to study that and then set up my own practice where I treated people with remedial massage therapy and um, phytotherapy, plant oils, and I ended up going on to teach other people how to do massage, how to use plant, um, plant oils as well. So I had quite a thriving business with that. Um, so that was, you know, one example of curiosity you know, leading me into that path. Yeah. And uh, and my first, you know, proper business venture, um, you know, apart from lots of little side ventures I'd done along the way when I was at uni, like setting up my own gardening practice, uh, landscaping practice and other things along the way. Um, and then curiosity led me to um, going in a completely different direction. And that was when I'd met my husband in Darwin, who's, uh, his name's Jerry, and he's from Northern Ireland. And um, after being with him for a year in Australia, he asked me to come back to Northern Ireland with him and help him to set up his business, uh, or actually it was our business together. And that was in a completely different field. So it was in civil construction and ultimately in house building and demolition. Um, nothing that I'd ever done before, but, you know, I guess from designing landscapes to, you know, designing um, housing estates, it doesn't, you know, it's not that big a stretch. And um, once you've started one business, you can apply those principles to starting other businesses as well. So that's that's what we did. And we headed off to Northern Ireland for 10 years and had a, a thriving business there. I'd love to circle back to that in just a tick, but you mentioned sure. that you met Jerry in Darwin. So what drew you to Darwin and what did you love about it? Oh, look, that's kind of a funny story because I came up to Darwin first because um, I thought before Jerry, I thought I was in love with someone else. He'd come up to Darwin. Um, so my boyfriend at the time had come up to Darwin for work. And I just thought, wow, this is a great adventure. I'm, I'm going to go up there. And what I discovered was, well, you know, lovely fella, but I didn't didn't really love him quite so much. Um, but I loved Darwin. I just felt like I'd found my niche in life and, uh, and my place to be. And, you know, Darwin's just like a big country town. So it was that country feel again. The bush is really close. You know, it's pretty wild. Um, 
I arrived in the wet season when massive storms and lightning and it was hot and uncomfortable, but just the most amazing people. Um, yeah, I think Darwin attracts the kind of people who like that feeling of the last frontier and there's so much opportunity in Darwin um, to to give something a go and people are very willing to give you a go. Oh, I love that. How old were you when you uh, moved to Darwin? Oh, gosh, it must be around 30 years ago. That, that's stretching it back quite a way. Um, so I'm 56 now, so probably, yeah, in my mid-30s. Actually, it might have been earlier than that, early 30s when I came up to Darwin. Yeah, and yeah. it must have looked very different then as well as yeah. it does now. Oh, actually, I'm adding a 10 decades onto my life. With my <laughs> mid twenties yeah, when okay. I came to Darwin, that's better. Yeah, I don't want to wish my life away. No, let's not do that. <laughs> let's hold on to every precious second. But yeah. it must have been a very different place then as it is now, even. Oh yeah, definitely. Look, it's it's really evolved as any place does, evolved and grown. Um, yeah, it was a little bit wilder back then, I think. There's, you know, like most places you end up with a bit more regulation coming on board and maybe that's not a bad thing, but look, we still have our crazy side. We we still have our crack at night every, every year where we <laughs> you know, feel like we're, it's Armageddon and we're blowing up the universe. And I'm not, I'm not that keen on that, but it's you know, people really hang on to those, those wild parts. But, yeah, it's definitely growing. Um, the population's growing and, you know, there's new opportunities that, that come with that as well. So to move from Darwin, which is pretty climatically different to Melbourne, and then to mm. go to Northern Ireland, which could not be more of a polar <laughs> opposite, I mean, what was some of the biggest cultural contrasts on landing in Northern Ireland and, and what were the things that really stuck out to you? Yeah, I mean, it was a massive change and I didn't expect it to be so well, climatic-wise, absolutely I expected to be that. And I'd actually uh, travelled through Europe um, like a decade before um, and ironically travelled, I hitchhiked my way around Ireland, which was a bit of a crazy thing to do at the time. And I'd actually been through the little town where we ended up living, but that's as a tourist. So, you know, I, kn- I knew what the climate was like. I knew it would be cold. That, But what I didn't expect was, you know, I thought, well, we all speak English. This is great. But when I got there, I literally couldn't understand a word anyone said. (laughs) The accents were so strong. My husband started speaking uh, a thousand times faster, it felt like, you know, and he wasn't trying to modify how he spoke. And um, he just told me I had to listen harder, (laughs) which is true. So uh, and culturally, um, some things were similar. So we lived in a country town on his family farm so that felt really comfortable and that felt really good that sense of community um, and being able to make some of the best friends I've ever made in my entire life in that place um, it was really really welcoming but I I did feel like I I was the odd one out there was not a lot of cultural diversity in the town although I, I was very lucky to you know be drawn towards other women that it also either married in or come from elsewhere or lived away and, and come back to, to this little town of Omar in County Tyrone. Um, but apart from that, I think um, the most difficult thing was the town of Omar where we went to live um, six weeks before we arrived. They actually had one of the biggest bombs go off in that little town, which was part of the Northern Irish Troubles. And it was 
uh, one of the worst atrocities in the whole history of the troubles. And, you know, I'd already sold my business. We actually had a shipping container with some of my gear <laughs> on its way to Northern Ireland. So there was no backing out. And it was such a shock because what had happened previously was that um, a Good Friday agreement had been signed, um, which was a political agreement for peace. So no one, let alone the people of Northern Ireland, were expecting an atrocity like this to happen. And, you know, 31 people, there was 29 people in a, and a woman who was pregnant, eight months pregnant with twins, um, died in, in that little town. So we arrived to a town in shock and grieving, yeah, still blocked off where um, the bomb had happened. And a lot of really physically and mentally injured people um, in that town. So I, you know, growing up <clears throat> in a safe place like Australia, we've never experienced anything like that. That was the biggest cultural shock for me and very confronting, very confronting to, to come into a community that had just literally just gone through that. So, yeah, that, that was tough, but, you know, they're an incredible, incredibly resilient community and a, such a welcoming community, you know, for someone who'd come from a really, you know, different society to just rock up into this. Um, I was welcomed with open arms. It that it does sound like a, a, a town that was really rocked by trauma and it really confounds me that that history is so recent and raw. Do you know, mm. like it really wasn't that long ago. Did you find homesickness challenging? Did you yearn for Australia or did you were you quite present and like this is our life at the moment? I definitely felt homesick and I think, you know, part of it was the climate. So I arrived at a time when, you know, you're, it's going into winter in Northern Ireland and it, the days uh, get dark, like, full dark at 4pm and you know, daylight doesn't even start to happen until about nine o'clock and really kick into 10am. So these short days are like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? And coming from Darwin where I had a, a really outdoor lifestyle, I was out every day, um, out in nature, out at the beach where I lived and, you know, going, going for runs along the beach and riding my bike. Um, and that just wasn't possible in that kind of climate. It was so cold and wet and dark. Um, so that that was really tough. That that took a little while to get used to. But uh, you know, I really put it down to um, you know my husband and and the friends I made through work um, that actually got me involved in the community and invited me to to be a part of that community. That absolutely one hundred percent helped that move pretty quickly into being present and and a part of um, creating a life there. Mm, that is such a real thing, that seasonal affective disorder or SAD. I think it's very, yeah. you know, it's very common for Antipodeans to really struggle with that mm. um, in the in mm. the UK. Uh, so you you started, you had a very th a thriving construction business. You had your two young boys. You'd started your family. What mm. happened and what then brought you back to Darwin? Yeah, well, a, a, another curveball, another um worldwide curveball really and that was the global financial crisis hit and it's something that I think didn't really affect Australia to the same degree as it did in other places but in Ireland and America we were one of the first um, countries I guess to be really impacted by that and it was literally like we were um, we were building houses at that stage um, and we'd had our first um, 
really big contract, which was to build 110 houses in total for a developer in the Republic of Ireland. So that was massive for us, absolutely massive. And the first part of the contract was 30 houses and we actually built all those, handed them over, had all the uh, materials ready for the next 30 to get going. And it was like someone turned off a switch and the banks just stopped lending. And that was everywhere. No one could get a loan. And the property developer, uh, out of those 30 houses, only sold two. And I think they were to family members of theirs. And they couldn't sell the rest and they couldn't pay us. So, you know, we were one of many, um, one of thousands of businesses that literally just tumbled um, because because of that situation. So it was really, really tough. Mm. And literally uh, a business, um, you know, we we had to, it went under um, and it was like, okay, what do we do now? And, you know, we're both employed in the business. We both have two little boys. Um, the entire industry is crumbling uh, in the whole of Ireland. So it's like, yeah, can we even get jobs? Because this is where we're working. Um, I, yeah, I'm not even a um, Northern Irish resident at that stage. I actually have Dutch citizenship and that's how I could live there. Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, it was a really, really big shock. So, you know, it was a tough time and, it was my idea when I said to my husband, okay, this is this is the reality. We're going to be poor for a little while by the looks of things um, and we can be poor and cold and I'm not quite sure what we're going to do here in Ireland or we can go back to Darwin and we can be poor and warm and we know that Darwin is the land of opportunity. Um, we can get off that plane and we'll probably have jobs within a week and, you know, we can just... Go back, we thought, for a few years, dust ourselves off. Um, by that stage, my parents had moved to Darwin and my brother. So my entire family were living in Darwin. And uh, my brother had, my sorry, my husband had two brothers that had lived there for many, many years. They'd emigrated in the 60s. And, uh, you know, so we, we actually had a network back there. And we thought, this this is what we'll do. So we, we chose Poor and Warm. And, uh, and we landed back in Darwin and, uh, you know, we're so fortunate. We had um, the most incredible support from both our families there uh, that just helped us regroup, gave us uh, a home to live. <clears throat> My mum and dad actually bought two what, what are known as dongers up here, so like demountable buildings, and my dad and I literally stripped them out and painted them and turned one into a three-bedroom like little unit and the other one into um, a kitchen living and dining area. So we actually had somewhere to live oh. and put that on my parents and my brother's block of land. And, yeah, my husband started working with one of his older brothers uh, in the business and I started uh, started work as well and that, that was the beginning. What an enormous transition and so turbulent. How did you keep your head above the parapet? How did you not tumble down into depression oh it's not, I tell you it's not easy you know don't don't think that it was you know just smooth sailing you know we really had to work hard at that and just you know what what was the alternative we're two young children you know do we do you just give up and, and go into a hole or or not and that's just not our nature it's like okay it's happened we can't do anything about that. So you can't look backwards. You can only look forwards. And, and, and what do we, what can we do now? What resources have, have we now? And at first it felt like the resources were very little, but with 
the family support, like first it's like, okay, we've got a roof over our heads, number one, that's great. We've got work, so we've got some income coming in, that's great. And, you know, my dad was amazing and he lent my husband $20,000 because he was working on a demolition project with, with his brother and an opportunity came up to buy a building that had been fire damaged. So it was an old classroom from Charles Darwin Middle School that was recovered from that demolition job. Um, and he spent some time cleaning it out, like he bought it off his brother, cleaned it all up, painted it up. Basically, it was an absolutely amazing building once it was all cleaned up and all fire damage was taken out. And he was able to sell that at a profit. And that was our start. So literally it could pay my dad back and we had some extra money and it was like, right. Uh, he says, I'm, I'm going back into business again. <laughs> and that's where we started. And we thought, okay, we're not doing house building. That's actually, we're actually not builders. We're just really good organizers. Yeah. Um, and we just thought, no, it's very competitive space. Let's go back to our core of what we know, which is civil construction. And then that evolved into demolition work as well. And yeah started from scratch. Mm, I take my hat off to you. Very, um, yeah, seriously resilient. So you started your construction company uh, or demolition company and Mm. then you actually stepped away from it after a while. Why did you step away and and where did you go next? Yeah, so for me, I started to just feel like it wasn't feeding my soul. (laughs) I wanted maybe a better term. You know, if I was really considering my values and the things that, you know, really light me up, um, the kind of work that I'd done over the years that I really enjoyed, when I reflected upon that, it was when I was actually helping other people um, or doing things that were involved in the environment um, and benefiting the environment, not demolition and civil construction, which is the polar opposite as well. It's like causing a lot of destruction in the environment. And I just started to feel like it wasn't you know it wasn't great and also when you've got you know two parents with young children that are trying to build ahead and everything is in a business that's you know just starting to grow again from scratch it's never smooth sailing like you don't immediately start business and woohoo you know we're making a great profit and you know we're both earning an income and you know that's quite stressful on a family as well and it just got to the point I I actually went on a really uh, five-day hike called the Jutbala Trail um, around Catherine Gorge, you know, with my son and some other friends through Humpty Doo Scouts, where I was actually a scout leader. So we took this little trip out and there's a lot of thinking time because I was disconnected from all the social media and the emails and disconnected some time away from the business and just space to think. And there's something about walking in the bush where you're yeah. physically active that just allows your mind to be free. And lots of great conversations with some of the, you know, there were young adults and um, teenagers who were on that that hike and some friends as well. And I just really began to think deeply about what I was doing and was able to articulate that if I could change it, what I'd want to do is actually take everything I've learned about business and all the good, the bad and the ugly, <laughs> because it's all valuable. And I feel like I could use that to actually help other people to start their businesses or to grow more resilient businesses. And I said, if I could do something where I could use that knowledge and do business coaching or mentoring, 
I don't know how I would do that or where I'd even begin to start, but that would actually be my dream job. And I didn't think anything more about it, um, but came back, started to have the conversation with my husband about, you know, needing to have some regular consistent income coming into our family, not the highs and the lows. Yeah, feast and famine. Very stressful. Mm. And I said, look, I think we're in a position where one of us should step out of the business and look at getting a job to get some permanent um, you know, some regular income coming in just for some stability while our boys are teenagers and, you know, we just bought our first block of land um, that we wanted to build, you know, a house on and set our business up on. So, you know, mortgage gets it gets a bit more serious then. Yeah. And uh, and I said, I think that person needs to be me. Um, I'm, I'm the one I'm going to start looking and see what's out there. And this job came up, this job ad came up from an organisation called Many Rivers. I've never heard anything about them before. Um, and it said field officer. And I thought, oh, I wonder if that's something to do with plants, you know, out in the field. And I looked at it and it was actually um, a job doing ex- almost exactly what I said I wanted to do. Wow. So business coaching and mentoring, but specifically helping people who are maybe in a space of disadvantage and maybe don't have job opportunities but want to start a business up to help them to grow and start a business from scratch and build a resilient business. And, um, yeah, Many Rivers have changed the name from Field Office now to a very fancy title called Micro Enterprise Development Manager. But anyway, <laughs> that's that's what I became. And I got the job and, oh, it was just the most amazing job and experience and I guess I treated it like uh, my own business anyway because many rivers had never been in the Northern Territory before there was myself and another um, gentleman um, he's a really good friend of mine who started as well out in East Arnhem Land and I was based in Darwin and we literally had to set up their business to help other people set up their businesses and yeah I got to travel and meet some of the most incredible people in remote communities remote um, first nations communities around the top end and also in darwin um and yeah incredible incredible time because it you were covering a huge swathe of land weren't you as oh yeah as a field officer yes yeah it was massive there was there was a lot of travel um that was interesting for my husband and my kids and when I actually went for the job, I knew that that's what would be involved. And they were very used to having me around mm. um, and doing all the jobs, as my youngest son said at the time, because, oh, mum does all the jobs. <laughs> it <really good> <laughs> doesn't uh, hurt every now and then, does it, to take out oh, that, that central stake and see how other people have to yeah, fill the well, void? I put it to them and I said, you know, if, if I'm going to do this job, I can only do it if you fellows support me so I said so I'm going to walk out of the room you three of you need to have a really good talk and you've got to be really honest with me because if you're not going to support me it's not fair on many rivers and I won't be able to do this job and um yeah so if um you know if if this is good for you that's fine so I I hopped out of the room and and I put my ear to the door so I could actually (laughs) listen to them (laughs) today And I heard my husband in his beautiful Northern Irish accent saying, well, boys, do you think you're up for running the asylum? <laughs> they would go, yes, Dad. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they struggled a little bit. Um, my oldest son said at the time, you know, after about six months, he goes, oh, Mum, I hate it when you go away. I hate it so much. 
he said, but but I know it's good for us. And he said, and you've actually saved me from being an unsufferable mummy's boy. (laughs) Wow, that's some pretty impressive self-awareness. It was. I was impressed. And he, uh, yeah, both of them can cook. They can run a household. Yeah, they they know how to look after themselves. So, you know, I've done them a favour at the end of the day and their future partners. Totally. um, Current partner. So, yeah, it, it was a good thing. Yeah, that's right. It's um, ripping out that codependency. Also, I find it so interesting how you got very clear with what it was you wanted and then the opportunity presented itself. Uh, do you think uh, like almost as if you manifested that that dream role for yourself? Yeah, I, I have to agree. It was just too close to what I'd really articulated in, mm. in my head. And, mm. you know, I'm not, I'm not really a you know, that woo-woo into manifestation, but I think getting really clear on your personal values and what drives you in life it can open your eyes to the opportunities that are out there. And, and I think that's, you know, it's such an important thing and, and it's really helped me to, that combined with following curiosity has just opened up all sorts of opportunities um, that actually are incredibly fulfilling for me, but also um, helped to create a bit of a legacy and really positive impacts, you know, beyond just myself and my family. So, so cool. I love it. It's very inspiring mm-hmm. and makes me want to go and write down my values. So mm-hmm. you were working for Many Rivers. What was the carrot dangled that drew you back to construction and Entex oh, and working with your partner? Yeah, well, um, Jerry started doing some really interesting things with the business around construction and demolition waste. And, you know, I, I, I like to I liked to refer to him as the most destructive man in Darwin, which he really <laughs> was. And, and all of a sudden he started to become a bit of a doer of good. And, you know, that, that sparked my interest. So it started first with uh, when he was looking at all the construction and demolition waste that come out of those projects. Like it's pretty massive. And in the past it would have all ended up in landfill. And, you know, if we look at what it, it Construction and demolition waste makes up something like 32% of all the waste that goes to our local landfill in Darwin. So it's pretty massive. And he just saw that as an opportunity. He said there's resources there that can be reused, recycled and repurposed. You know, I'm really, he says, I really think we can do something with this. And, you know, he he loves looking up about different equipment and uh, in the civil construction world and what other people are doing in other countries. It's, it, that's a bit of a hobby of his. He loves to, to get online and see what else is happening out there. And he'd come across some really interesting recycling technology around uh, recycling concrete and asphalt. And um, he really took a, a, what I felt like was a bit of a gamble at the time and invested a lot of money importing Uh, one of these innovative crushing concrete crushing machines from Germany and you know I'm like oh my gosh but you haven't even got a market for it do you know if anyone's even going to buy any product if you do it like don't you think we should build a business case first he goes nope I know it's going to work I'm just we we actually need to show people how it works so that's what he did and he started doing concrete recycling and it grew from there where he thought well as well as concrete, there's different metals that come out of demolition projects and other waste streams. All those things can be reused and recycled and, you know, can partner with other businesses, uh, metal recycling companies and 
Um, it may even be, he said, sometimes there's furniture. Um, for example, when he did a demolition job out at Kakadu National Park for um, an old motel there, it was perfectly good furniture in, in that hotel that would have just gone to, to landfill. But instead, you know, he looked out at the community and said, well, what are the possibilities here? Does anyone want this? And he partnered with Northern Land Council, who were able to distribute that perfectly good furniture to some remote Aboriginal communities. So nothing you know, went to waste there or very little went to waste. And I just thought, this is fantastic. Uh, you're doing some really good stuff here. And, you know, you're helping other people, um, you're helping the environment. And I kept asking him, I said, oh, you know, you should be telling this story. No one knows what you're doing except for the few um, organisations, whether it was NTGov or federal government or private industry that you're doing these jobs for. And he said, oh, oh yeah, I know we, we could be doing so much more, but I don't have time. We're all so busy. No one has time to, you know, to go out and market it or tell or grow this side of the business. So I think after questioning him for about six months, he turned around and said to me, he goes, oh, I really need you back. Could you come back and help me to grow this? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Um, and then he turned around and dangled just that one extra carrot, which was, look, I know you really like doing the work where you're mentoring other people in their businesses. And he said, and in fact, you bring a lot of the clients that you work with in Many Rivers to come talk to me if they're in the civil construction or any construction business and I and I would I'd say oh Jerry you know could I just bring so-and-so along to have a chat with you because you might be able to give them some ideas or you could um, make an introduction to some other business that will help them to get some work and I was constantly doing this and he said why don't we actually just make that part of what we do that um, we do like a pro bono mentoring scheme, business mentoring scheme for First Nations businesses within our industry, um, but formalised a little bit more so that we're not actually doing the work for those businesses, but we provide them access to our human services and our, our knowledge and connections into our industry as well to help them grow resilient, sustainable businesses and, and yeah, make that impact in our community. So that was the last little carrot that was dangled <laughs> and and you know along with that he allowed me to bring in some other initiatives which was also um, partnering with another little grassroots uh, little aboriginal corporation called grassroots action palmerston who was actually started off as a many rivers client as well yeah. and they developed a youth engagement program to help indigenous youth who were disengaged um, maybe from school or work to actually have opportunities to get into a work program and be given a, an opportunity to try working in a real business, in a real job um, as a program for 10 weeks. So we partnered with them to, to bring some young Indigenous youth through our business and we still continue to do that. And, yeah, three, we've had six so far. Three are still with us at the moment and, and we're offered permanent work. Um, and yeah, one in particular, which I'm so proud of her, um, a young woman who has a uh, Savannah, I'm going to give her a big shout out because she's gone on to do her certificate two in civil construction in planned operations. She actually messaged me today to say, I'm doing my first demolition job. I'm in the excavator. Um, I'm separating all the waste streams and she I actually did a radio interview this morning she said and I heard you on the radio talking <laughs> about this and here I am doing it so that's yeah. so cool 
Yeah. So that was the last piece of the puzzle and, and it saw me come back into Entex. Yeah, it's so awesome. And with Entex, I mean, what are some of the stats around the recycling and repurposing that you've been able to achieve? Yeah, we've, we've got some pretty impressive stats. So we're actually able to recycle on average 93% of the resource of the waste that comes out of the demolition project. So that's wow. 93% of resource recovery, meaning only 7% ends up going to landfills wow. on average, which is pretty phenomenal. And yeah, we're we're actually able to back all of that up with evidence. So it's not there's no greenwashing going on. Yeah. Um, you know, we we track um all the waste streams and have evidence for where it goes and what we do with it. Yeah, that those stats pretty much blow the industry out of the water because, yeah, the recycling of construction and demolition waste is becoming more of a thing. It's In Europe, it's, it's embedded in how those businesses work. It's newer in Australia and it was very new for Darwin, mm. but um, you know, usually it hovers around the 70% mark. So, you know, we're just proof that with a bit of determination, uh, you, you can actually get it very, very high. Within that, you did win the Northern Territory's top position for the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award for 2023 with your sustainability project. Can you tell me quickly a little bit about that and, and how that works? Yeah, sure, sure. So when I looked at the um, sustainability initiatives that we'd implemented in NTEX, both the environmental side and benefits to the community side, I thought those are principles that can be applied to any business. And I guess I had my business coaching and mentoring hat on and I thought if we can do it in one of the most destructive industries um, on the planet, you can take those same principles to any other industry or business and start to apply them. Now, it won't be the same as what Entex have done, has done. Um, there are different opportunities in different locations and different industries, but there's still opportunities for businesses to look into is there a possibility to tap into that circular economy and potentially create new income streams or is there potential to create um, initiatives that benefit the environment and benefit our community while also having a positive impact on a business's profit because like if a business isn't profitable you can hug as many trees as you want and do as many nice things to the community as you want but you're not going to last because you need it's a business needs to be sustainable with its profit as well. Mm. And and you have an obligation for that because, you know, a profitable business gives taxes back, which benefits the Australian community um, and it provides employment opportunities. So those things are really important as well. I really so I like thought, that as well because, it, yeah. you know, often doing good can come at the expense of profit or mm -hmm. for, yeah. you know, it, like money is not evil, it's energy. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I call it looking at the triple bottom line of benefits to people, planet and profit. Those things need to be balanced well so you can do all of them. Mm. And there are there are principles that can be applied to any business. So I thought, okay, how can I help other businesses to do that? Um, let's start looking at is there a really simple way? Because if it's too hard, no one's going to do it. No one's got the time. We're all busy. So it's got to be simple and, and easy and it's got to be practical really practical things that you can start, even if it's just 1% changes that you can start to do and you can build upon that in a business. So I came up with um, a workshop that I ran last year in Darwin for October Business Month because I thought, oh, just 
give this little trial, see if anyone's even interested. Maybe no one, no one cares or is interested, but people were very interested. And I've since run a few more workshops. And apart from workshops, I've been asked to present and talk about what we do at NTEX and how that can be applied elsewhere and to all sorts of industry groups as well, um, including Charles Darwin Uni students uh, who are studying um, maybe their master's in business in sustainable enterprise. So, yeah, the principles I took and I applied it to how could other businesses do that and come up with their own practical action plan yeah, for sustainability. It's, it's so cool. And so how many businesses have you spoken to and what's the goal for you? What's your vision? Yeah, well, up until when I applied for um, the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award, which was um, the beginning of the year, I'd connected with um, around about 200 individuals, businesses and organisations across doing all these doing the workshop and all the different presentations um, that I'd also done. So I thought, okay, it won't be hard then if I look at expanding that impact out and running more workshops and presentations and, and, and talks. Um, my goal is this year to reach 800 wow. businesses and take that out of Darwin and out into more regional and rural locations. So um, I've done a couple of workshops recently in rural Darwin, but also I've got one this week coming up um, in, in Darwin City, uh, also to talk about the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award and, and run a workshop at the same time. And then I'll be taking that out to Alice Springs and Tennant Creek in August. And then in October, we have October Business Month again, and I thought I need to go back to my roots, another one in Darwin and um, also uh, in Catherine and potentially Nulamboy as well. Um, and and guess wherever I'm asked. Uh, yeah, it's I'll very take that out. It's a very empowering thing to say that no matter the business, no matter how big or how small you are, you can evoke positive change in in your three P's, your people, planet, and profit. Which I think mm -hmm. is really um, it's a very empowering thing for business owners to hear. Uh, and so you did receive a, a fifteen thousand dollars Westpac grant as part of your AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. So how have you planned to to use that that grant? Yeah, so I want to use that grant to create better educational resources that I can actually provide people. So you know, I've created my own spreadsheets and and handouts, et cetera, which have been doing fine, but I want to take it to a, a higher level um, and create a web page where people can also access a lot of that information because that gets the impact out there further. Anyone could go online and, and, and look at that. Um, so and creating some video stories around how does this work because I really feel like storytelling is a great way to get people engaged in how this might work. Um, and sharing of stories of mine and, and other people's as well of how you might um, look at different ideas that you could apply to your business. So that's part of the grant. And the other part is educating myself further. So I plan to attend a conference, circularity conference in Melbourne, um, to connect with other thought leaders in that industry and see, well, what are other businesses in other areas doing? What knowledge and information can I bring back to Darwin and the Northern Territory and the project to just help it continue to grow and strengthen. It, just making those resources available kind of on that wide level, it's very democratising for, for businesses that no matter kind of their entry level or 
I suppose their profit margin, they they're able to access some yeah resources that are really really helpful. Eileen, it's been just so inspiring as always to chat with you, and I just love your energy and your enthusiasm and your curiosity and your passion. So, uh, is there any um, can any business get in touch with you with that would like to look at their sustainability uh, ventures? Absolutely, they can. Absolutely, they can. Um, a great way to connect with me is on LinkedIn because I'm sharing a lot more of the stories and that's another way I want to, to grow the impact is sharing what other people are doing. So you can connect with me there um, or you can uh, email me at Entex, which is business at entex.com.au. That's probably the two easiest ways and to N-Tex find is me. N-T-E-X. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. And if you're in the Northern Territory, uh, one thing that, um, we're doing with or I'm doing with the sustainability project is I recognize I'm only one person so it's a little bit scary and I've still got a business to run and and, and I can only stretch so far so I've been really fortunate to have interest from the NT Chamber of Commerce and some other um, industry and business groups to start with literally just freshly started a sustainability business working group and um, we want to look at how we grow that over the next six months um, and get our foundations good with that to literally have an, an opportunity to grow the impact beyond myself with like-minded businesses and, and support from other stakeholders across the Northern Territory. So watch that space um, and I'll definitely be sharing that through LinkedIn, um, how people can uh, look at joining in the future. Yeah, you have to make it sustainable for yourself as well. Don't forget to practice what you oh, preach. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much, Eileen, for your generosity and we look forward to watching uh, where you what you do next. Thanks very much indeed. What a powerhouse. I found Eileen's curiosity so bright and infectious and how she has followed that charm to lead a really full and interesting life. It's amazing what Entex has been able to achieve when it comes to rescuing, repurposing and recycling resources from the demolition projects, including some 60,000 tonne of waste concrete and asphalt from landfill since July 2020. Like she says, if Entex can find ways to be more sustainable in the demolition biz, we all can. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our very special AgriFutures Rural Women's Awards series as much as I loved having this chat. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. It means the world and keeps us doing what we love. Our latest issue of Grazy Her is on the shelves now in all quality newsagents. If you're a long shout from the nearest town, consider subscribing. We often have amazing subscription deals and it means you receive your copy of the mag in your mailbox, fuss-free, six times a year. Until next time, keep well. My name is Emma Herbert and this is a Grazy Her podcast.